Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and action in education. With Kara Furman, I'm Derek Gottlieb. In this episode, we are talking about organizing in educational spaces in order to resist the materially harmful effects of public policy and to work toward something better. We talk about the particular things that hang weights on educational institutions and practices, and we discuss the strategies and the groups working to oppose them. Our guests today are both very active in organizing for justice, and we hope you find this conversation productive. So good to see both of you. Uh, Welcome. We're going to start today by asking if you can introduce yourselves and feel free to share a little bit about your your work um, in the community, your work um, in terms of scholarship and or any publications that you want to highlight as well. Okay. Jason, why don't you start us off? Okay. Um, first off, really great to be here. This is a really nice opportunity to speak with people that I get to read and sometimes think with in public, um, which is fantastic. So thank you for the invite. And Gia, it's nice to meet you. And um, I'm Jason Wozniak. I'm an assistant professor of education foundations and policy studies at Westchester University, where I teach a lot of critical theory in education. I also coordinate, uh, co-coordinate the Latin American philosophy of education society. And I do a ton of work in activist circles with uh, the group called Debt Collective, um, who has been around since Occupy Wall Street, started a strike debt, and then kind of transformed over the years. And I would kind of like to humbly say that I don't think we get any modicum of debt cancellation without the efforts of Debt Collective. So it's been a long struggle, but with good comrades there. And um, yeah, I'll leave it at that and we get into other things as we go along. Great. And Gia, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Gia Lee. I'm a New York City public school teacher, special education at the Earth School. I'm also a member of the Movement of Rank and File Educators, which is a caucus within the United Federation of Teachers. And um, guess how, you know, I kind of started with organizing work um, and advocacy work in public education has to do with being a parent, actually. And um, the work of resisting high-stakes standardized testing. And it's great to be here, and we'll talk more. Thanks. Um, So you started to move us there a little bit. Can you tell a bit of a story about how you got involved in organizing. Um, and just to back up, I think our talk to our podcast today is on organizing in schools, the role of organizing and activism. And tell us again, why is this an important issue? Why should listeners care about it? And actually a little bit before that, what brought me to a school like the Earth School, which is a progressive public elementary school in the East Village, um, has to do with like really feeling frustrated as a special education teacher and the no child left behind mandates of, you know, using high seek standardized testing for accountability purposes. Um, and as a teacher, I felt really isolated and with an incredible amount of pressure at my previous school um, to focus on raising test scores because it was attached to 
uh, teachers, uh, the school rating at that time, schools were getting graded. I don't know if you recall, but there was a year that teacher, um, you know, like their metrics were being posted on a newspaper. And then there was a teacher who committed suicide as a result of that, um, or that publication. I think it was like Daily News or the New York Post, some, something like that. Um, and me feeling like this isn't right. Um, all the research, I remember doing tons of research with, you know, uh, reading the outcomes of psychometrics um, being related more to socioeconomic status, uh, parent educational attainment, um, and broader issues outside of the classroom and even outside of the school. Something didn't feel right. So I was really lucky. I found a group of educators and parents. Um, it was a grassroots education movement, GEM for short. You can find a film, a documentary that they actually created called The Inconvenient Truth Behind Waiting for Superman. So if you watch that, you get an understanding that the consequences tied to these high stakes metrics impacted us directly in the classroom with a very top-down compliance-based uh, education system. I One thing that educators now who were around then remember and, and have a visceral reaction to are like data binders, <laughs> because I would remember being held accountable for data binders and on every single kid. It was a ridiculous amount of paperwork. Um, it was a ridiculous amount of not focusing on the child um, and the students. So I actually almost quit teaching at that point. Um, I started looking for schools that weren't forcing this on their teachers and uh, found the earth school. And that's when I realized, wow, if the students just down the street and literally it was two blocks away from where I was teaching, if students here can have a whole child education and the teachers feel a sense of democracy and, uh, you know, pedagogical wherewithal to teach to the students and not to the test. This should be the rights of all students. I couldn't stay quiet anymore. Literally um, took that and, you know, organized resistance to the high six center and assessing came out as um a conscientious objector and refused to administer the state standardized test as a fourth and fifth grade teacher. And um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got in it. And as a, as a teacher, like, how did we get, a, how did we go along with these policies as a, you know, a member of a union that should be organizing. So then I found out, Oh, our union leadership actually shook hands on this thinking that if we have a seat at the table, we'd be able to control this. But actually, no, there are powerful forces behind it. It has to do with profits, et cetera. Can you, can you say uh, a little bit about how the Earth School is organized? Is it a public entity? Is it a private school? It's a public school. It's actually where I met Kara. And <laughs> she's a teacher there. Um, it's a public elementary school. It started in the East Village uh, with probably... Uh, the progressive education movement that started in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. The first one was Central Park East One. Um, there's a documentary, a 30-minute short I recommend everyone watch. Uh, it was filmed in 1979 called We All Know Why We're Here. It's literally a quote from one of the kids. 
Um, and from that started these other progressive elementary schools that the community wanted. Um, so it was community created. And by the time I got to the earth school, you know, there were systems and it had grown um, and it was such a welcoming space. I'm sorry to like keep us in this space for a second. This is not typically how this podcast goes, but I'm just super curious. How does the Earth School manage to do a whole child sort of education within a system uh, that that is necessarily sort of under these mandates? There's a history I mentioned. <clears throat> the systems within the school have a fundamental belief that we teach to the students. And in that, our practice is in observing students, getting to know them well. Uh, this is a school that doesn't do grades. We write uh, narrative reports on each child, which means it's qualitative. It's um, There's some quantitative aspects, but those practices, um, including our professional, the way we do professional development as educators is very circular. In, in my not in this hierarchical top-down structure. So uh, we would do things like descriptive reviews of process. A teacher, someone from the community will want to raise an issue, a problem that they're facing either with a particular student or an area of practice and go through the process of writing up what the issue is, um, reflect, have somebody to you know bounce off what the big questions are. And another piece is that we essentially, we write curriculum. We write the curriculum based on uh, big questions. And we see ourselves as like the facilitators and creating the spaces for students. And so in that way, teachers have a great deal of autonomy. And that just doesn't exist. It's a fundamental difference between a school like the Earth School and, you know, a more traditional school. And how do you cope with the requirements that you must still be subject to, to test annually, et cetera. One of the things about a progressive school like this too, is the relationship with parents. The relationship with parents makes it fundamentally like they're included. It's, you know, no place is perfect, but definitely a huge uh, difference between a traditional school is that parents are kind of left out of the daily goings on and even what teachers do. So they're natural allies. So we communicate with parents, hey, this is what's going on. These pressures are coming from policymakers up down, you know, from the top while they slash our budgets, right? We have to add in things about the austerity. And next thing you know, they're fired up and they're like, well, we need to resist this. And it's not just what we're against. It's what we're for. We're fighting for this educational you know, process in the school. So there, there's something they're fighting for in the school, which um, I think makes them, it, we can't do this without, you know, the community allyship. So is this, I, is this, is, when it comes time in the spring to administer tests, what happens in your school? Kind of starts in the fall. We start talking about, so what is assessment with parents? We hold workshops with parents <clears throat> um, we'll invite speakers to come talk about, you know, experts in the field of psychometrics, for example, who've written things about the impacts of high stakes standardized testing, not just on individual students. It's more than just about like my kid, you know, gets really nervous or anxious. 
This is about systemic, you know, institutionalized racism. So um, because of the disproportionate impact on schools and predominantly black and brown communities. So, you know, it's it's about education, political awareness. And um, then by the time spring comes, we've already kind of laid the work. So there are generations, you know, every year of parents who build on that and get involved. And we form something called a parent teacher advocacy committee within our student, uh, our school It's like our SLT, the school leadership team, which is a group of 50% elected parents, 50% um, elected staff. And we form a subcommittee within there. Every school has an SLT. So um, you can create things like that. And that's where we do a lot of the advocacy and organizing work. And by the spring, we'll get somewhere like 70 to 80% um, parents signing their kids um, out of the tests. Excellent. Thank you. Sorry to hijack that for so long. It's very interesting. Jason, you want to tell us a little bit about how you're entering into this kind of advocacy? Yeah, so um, not nearly as interesting as Gia's story, but uh, just really quick, I, you know, I, I think it's important to note that I grew up with, a, my father was an educator, he was a principal at grammar schools on the south side of Chicago and very much involved in civil rights type struggle. Um, and so that was part of the environment growing up. And then I had the good opportunity of, when I was doing my master's degree at University of Illinois in Chicago, actually with David Hansen. I met uh, Jackson Potter, who's now the vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union. We became very good friends, and Jackson pulled me into some work on Plan Colombia, and then we did some sweatshop stuff, so on and so forth. And then I ended up in Brazil and in for 10 years, and I lived in Rio de Janeiro. And what's interesting about Latin America, and I'm generalizing, obviously, is that the political discourse in education is much more to the left, um, and it's more common sense to talk about things like neoliberalism you know, with pretty much anybody. Um, so I think that uh, those things were seeds planted, came back to New York City, was very, you know, involved in Occupy Wall Street. And then more recently, I think for the sake of this conversation, I've been doing a ton of work in K through 12 education around um, school district debt. Because one of the things that happened recently over the last four years or so is I was talking with teachers that I was teaching because I teach a, a, in a master's program. And they started to talk about, you know, asbestos in their buildings in Philadelphia, um, walls crumbling, almost falling on students, uh, teachers getting extremely sick, uh, overcrowded classrooms, um, you know, teachers burning out, leaving very early. Uh, and so we start, you know, one of the things we said is like, well, let's try and go to the root causes of this. And I think one of the, when we started to do that, inevitably we came up with this analysis that says, look, there's an austerity problem here. It's an austerity problem that's driven by debt. In other words, so for example, in the city of Philadelphia, we pay $300 million a year in debt service to Wall Street. City of Chicago is paying six hundred million or something. The City of Chicago K through twelve students. This is K through twelve students. The average debt load for a K through twelve student is twenty six thousand dollars per student in Chicago. And so basically, what happened is these stories of teachers. And then I'm a part of the the R City R Schools Coalition in Philadelphia. 
Um, and, you know, so teachers, parents, students themselves talking about the conditions that they face going to school every day and then asking the question like, okay, well, then how do we get to the root causes of this? Like, what's actually driving this? And you end up with some version of racial capitalism and racial capitalism in the neoliberal system today. And, you know, at the heart of that is this question of financial debt and financial capital. And so we actually started to do a lot of popular education around this. Um, fast forward really quick. This summer, we have a special issue of Rethinking Schools coming out specifically on K through 12 debt. So, you know, there are kids all across the state of Pennsylvania that have lunch debt. The school districts are in debt. Teachers are in debt. Uh, financial literacy, quote unquote, is mainly taught teaching people how to live responsibly within a debt system. But it's very racist and very much like how do you reproduce some neoliberal subjectivity rather than question it. And so like there's an article about like how do you, you know, help people in a K through 12 classroom get to these these issues of uh you know, indebtedness, but how to resist it, not just how to survive in it. So that those are some of the things that I've been involved in. There's a lot more to say. I've done some of the same work in like Colombia and South America and Brazil, Argentina, other places, but it's been a long, somewhat securitous path that's always been on the same focus of the way that financial debt is at the heart of neoliberalism and how that impacts K through 12 teachers and teaching. Jason, just for listeners who maybe don't know that terminology. Can you define neoliberalism briefly? Oh my God. Just briefly, just briefly. Plus, plus that's just a word that I'm always like having to relook up to make sure I know exactly how someone's using it. So for me too, yeah. please define. Wow. Yeah, no. And maybe we could all try and define it together. I, I think love it'd it. be more helpful to be honest with you. So I can start off and then maybe Gia can kick in and Derek and Kara, you could also say something. Um, all right. So here's a, here's a brief shot or a, a brief attempt. Um, you know, and the tricky thing about this is that, is that to understand neoliberalism, you have to have an idea of what liberalism is, but we're not going to get into that whole discourse, right? But let's just, let's, let's try and bracket it off. So temporally, or like historically, some, most people say we can mark the beginning of neoliberalism sometime in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, although there's ideas definitely circulating before then, um, you get a group of thinkers like Milton Friedman, um, Theodore Schultz, Gary Becker in the U.S., but there's also people in Europe who are coming up with this idea of how to run like political economy or like how to run your economy, how to run your country. And one of the things that happens is that the general theory says all of society, all of life should run like a business um, and that all of our social relations, like the way that we relate to students, the way that we relate to people, including Gary Becker talks about the family, should be run like a business. And that also means that you should run schools like businesses. And so you get people like Paul Vallis in Chicago and other other places who actually do come in and try and run their schools like businesses rather than schools, etc. So another part of it is that there's this idea that the government should be hands off to the extent that it, it should only set up the conditions for the mark capitalist market to function well. So it's not like get rid of government. I think that's a mistake when people think about neoliberalism. It's actually like, no, how does the government work as a business in support of market forces to make sure that capital makes as much money as possible? And one of the ways you do that is you try and privatize everything. 
and you cut back on public goods. So you you hollow out, like Wendy Brown will say, you hollow out public higher education. You by defunding it, you give tax breaks to corporations and high um, high earners, thinking in this idea of like a Reagan idea, who's Reagan and Thatcher are two of the main players here. This idea that there's going to be trickle down economics, right? Like the money's going to come down from the top and land in the pockets of the working class. And we know now, like from 40 plus years of data that, you know, inequality's only grown. Um, and so this trickle down theory has been an abject failure if you're in the working class. But I think one other really important thing to talk about, and this gets a little in the weeds, is like there's this more Marxian approach to neoliberalism, which is led by people like David Harvey. There's this other side, though, it's a more Foucauldian, Michel Foucault, French philosopher, who talks about the ways that this changes how we think of ourselves as people. So the technical term is subjectivity. But we could call it personhood for, for right now. So like basically this idea that neoliberalism is both a set of policy beliefs and practices that changes how we think of ourselves and relates to other people. So, for example, we're very accustomed and it's almost like normal to say like education is for the production of what we call human capital. So, you know, like I'm a piece of human capital and I need to invest in myself so that I can then go sell myself constantly on the market. So I'm always selling myself on the market. I'm always selling myself and branding myself. And one of the ways I'm able to sell myself so efficiently or so well is because I've accumulated, I've built this investment in myself because I'm human capital, remember, and so I'm going to be a really good market player. And so it really does change how I think of myself, but it also changes how I think about education. Because once we start to think of education solely as a as an investment in human capital, then really, if you think about, well, like, why would you study poetry or philosophy? You know, unless you can justify, oh, this is building my human capital. But then that changes how you read philosophy. It changes how you read poetry, et cetera, et cetera. So those, so much more to say. Um, obviously, that's a big part of this because you know, and you see this most easily in higher education, but basically as a result of protests in the 1960s and 70s, Reagan and friends say, we need to cut, we need to make sure that the protests don't happen. What's one way to do that? You cut funding for public higher education. So like at University of California, at the same time, you still have to pay for it. So what do you do? You say tuition goes up and then there's this gap, right? And how do you fill the gap? Well, students take on student loans in order to account for the lack of public funding and the need to still access the education at higher tuition rates. And so you have this massive debt problem grow or begin and it, it accelerates. I guess the last thing I'll say, it's really, really important for listeners to recognize that this is not just Republicans, that both Democrats and Republicans are neoliberals for the most part. Um, you have exceptions, of course, but, uh, you know, so for, you know, under Barack Obama, you get race to the top neoliberal program. You get an enormous increase in student loan debt under, in the Obama years. Uh, and so I think it's important to recognize that this is a, you know, Paul Vallis running for mayor in Chicago, big time neoliberal. And um, we just need to be aware of that. I don't know if that helped. Extremely. That was great. Gia, do you want to chime in on that? You're good. <laughs> the, like, I, I just to follow up on all of that real quick, such a thorough rendition. It is so important. The, the very first thing that you said that like, whenever we're defining neoliberalism, it means different things. 
throughout the world, like a Latin American version of neoliberalism is not the same as, as the one that we uh, talk about in the United States very often. I think of like Naomi, like Wendy Brown's version of neoliberalism is not the same as Gary Gersel's is not the same as David Harvey's, you know, like all of these things are quite different. I love the emphasis on what Naomi Murakawa calls organized abandonment, the idea that we're going to withdraw public funding from the public sphere. And we're going to replace that with like upfront payments that have to be repaid by individuals. So like, this is the, the thing that makes me so angry when I hear about like, well, the money follows the kid or like we should invest in kids, not in institutions or whatever. Those investments in kids often come with much more profound and destructive strings. I think about like Robert Meister's uh, thinking of like uh, individuals as portfolios of social advantages, whether like more uh, diversified or not, and how education just becomes one of those. You talked about the Obama administration, sort of neoliberal um, programs and race to the top and with higher education. The idea of creating a college scoreboard or a scorecard as being like, encouraging students to be like, well, we can we can make this system of student loans just if we get colleges to tell us up front what the return on investment there is uh, for particular majors in particular places. It's all part of the same logic. And th- I just wanted to underscore the last part of that about the the ideological component here in which individuals are in are are incentivized, coerced, encouraged at any rate to think of themselves as individual benefit maximizers while the state's exclusive role is to create the formal legal frameworks that uh, are just fundamentally uh, rooted in private property rights, enforcement of contracts. There you go. Who is the organized abandonment? Sorry. uh, Uh, That's Naomi Murakawa. She said it in... uh, uh, she's the author of the first civil right, uh, which is okay. about, um, and she said this in a a big symposium on uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Organized abandonment, like that that phrase has just been very redolent to me. The idea that we're just going to pull back, the state is going to pull back from the public sphere and fund individuals instead. That's like instead of austerity. That's the phrase that I've come to that's come to rattle around in my head. Yeah, I love that. It's super helpful. Thanks. So I'm going to ask you both to speak a little bit about what you have found on these particular issues. And before I do, though, I wanted to come back to something that Gia pointed out um, that I just want to resurface because I had the privilege of um, witnessing and being part of the community in which Gia was organizing us um, at a really key moment. It was right as we were starting as a school to opt out of high stakes tests. Um, so I want to highlight for listeners um, the time frame that Gia is describing that when Derek said, what happens in the spring? Gia said, well, it starts in the fall. Um, I think that that really needs to be underscored. And then I also want to underscore Gia's emphasis, and I think, Jason, this will resonate with your work, too, of the way in which all stakeholders are brought into a conversation. Um, And I can remember very specifically a phone call late at night from Gia and a colleague when we were just starting as a school to think about opting out. And we were talking about sort of how to begin this conversation at the Earth School. Um, And ultimately, Gia, what struck me about the way in which you 
and your colleague Colin sort of brought this issue to the Earth School was that it was really important not to be blindsiding anybody. And so you guys talked, then you talked with me and some other teachers, I believe. Then you went to the administration and said, this is what we're thinking. How might we go about this? Then you went to families. And I again, I don't remember exactly what the the order of all these conversations were. But the point that I want to make is that you made sure that you were bringing in everybody who was affected into the conversation. And so when, as a school, we did opt out, and it was increasingly in large numbers, it was not you and Colin putting that on us. You had organized an interest that was within the community. And everybody came in in different ways. And so it was a group standing up and saying, you know, we as a school in the East Village are making this claim, as opposed to, you know, two people in the school who were sort of um, thinly making an argument for other people. So I just wanted to highlight that. I think it was in your story, but to sort of stress it. Um, so what have you found um, about organizing and what that means in schools. And Derek, did you want to chime in for with something can, first? Can I ask that question in a slightly different way? Can you talk, in, in terms of the things that you've found and the work that you've done, can you talk about the connection between top-down management that you've experienced and the sort of, uh, and this organized abandonment that you are facing and the, the ways that you've countered that with organization yourself? Yes, actually, I was just going to say that process matters. Right. Process is key here. Um, I would also even add, um, if you look up, you know, what is white supremacy or like, you know, what, how does white supremacy show up in institutions and in policy and things like that? It's very much a small group of people who hold all the information, right. And make, and, uh, how decisions are made are not really known to the people that it's really impacting. Right. It's one of the one of the key features. I think it's under Timo Kuhn, you know. Um, so process matters. I also work with labor notes, which if you go back, harkens to the days of the Highlander Institute and you know, the organizing of SNCC and other civil rights organizers and activists. Um, because of this awareness between what's happening with people's civil rights and capitalism, right? Capitalism and all the profits are made off the backs of people. And in there, there are certain groups of people that that need to be oppressed. And it continues on, you know, all from the days of slavery. But I'm, I'm sharing all this because if Colin and I had decided we're going to do this thing because it's what's best for our school. And we had this attitude like we know what's best against the people over there who think this is what's best. We're just perpetuating the same kind of ideology. Rather, in labor notes, Hargis, you know, it's all about union, um, rank and file organizing. So I actually do trainings for labor notes across the country. And the thing that I find the most people have embedded and ingrained in their beds, um, their brains is that even as like a shop steward or as like a chapter leader in the case of the UFT, um, there's this idea of service. That once I become a representative, I'm in service to my members rather than viewing themselves as my power, right? It's inextricably linked to the empowerment of my colleagues, of the people I work with. So it's not a service. It's literally facilitating 
you have to see yourself as a facilitation of helping people to kind of awaken to their own empowerment and their power that lives within them and to harness that. What we have are numbers. It's often a small group of people that is making decisions, who are making the decisions for the masses. And the masses need to realize their powers in their in our numbers. So that's essentially, you know, the idea that Colin and I don't see ourselves as like in service to the people who don't know any better, right? We see ourselves as, no, we have, we all each have power and we need to unleash it. So that's kind of the root of it. Thank you. That's great. Uh, Jason. Yeah. Uh, first off, this is great company. So yeah, I do work with Barbara Mataloni as well. And we, from Labor Notes, and we're, there's a crew of us that's writing a book on higher education debt. Um, and Barbara's part of that crew. And, you know, one of the lessons from Barbara, who's kind of a legendary organizer in K through 12 circles out of Massachusetts is, and I think, Carrie, you, you started to get to this, the amount of time that we needed to give ourselves in order to build community, in order to build the relations, in order to build the comradeship that you're going to have to fight. You know, because um, transactional relations, business relations, business style unionism makes it harder, I think, to fight against some of these neoliberal forces that are like just so powerful, so well funded. And what ends up happening is you need to have those good, strong friendships and relations with your with your friends if you're going to do battle against these big dragons. You know, the Zapatistas say lento pero avanzamos slowly, but we advance. And before they had any type of revolutionary force, they were in the jungle for 10 years doing like popular education with one another, learning, rethinking, et cetera, et cetera. And so I just think like the temporality of this is really important to emphasize how long it takes to or actually organize. And that's different from the top down model where you like Gia was saying, you just get a couple people, what we call like a vanguard, which is the supposed, you know, people that have all the knowledge and they have all the strategy and then they just kept come and tell everybody what to do. Right. Um, but yeah, I think just in terms of practical terms, you know, in terms, in practical terms, you know, I think there's two things to keep in mind. One is this idea of like a bargaining for the common good framework, which is used in Chicago and other places where when you go to negotiate contracts, you build in not just demands around salary and benefits for your workers, et cetera, but also like you work with community members to talk about like, what are some of the things that the community needs and could win in this contract negotiation with us? So like in Chicago, again, you have the case of like, well, we need more social workers or we need nurses or even like, we need to talk about affordable housing. And I think this is a strategy that more and more people K through higher education need to build into their, into their framework. And, the, and, and it takes time, but again, I think like it makes your position at the table much stronger because you have community support. Um, and then just to highlight, you know, like one of the one of the, I think the bigger victories against neoliberalism K through twelve in higher education in the recent year was the Massachusetts Teacher Association won a millionaire's tax, and that means basically that there's going to be more money available for higher for for education in the state of Massachusetts coming off the backs of the wealthiest. But you know, I was just talking to some people that were involved in it. That took like twenty years. Um, and I think, again, it's just really important to emphasize that things organizing does not move at the speed of Twitter or Facebook or whatever else. Like it is a long, slow process that often we need to have like revolutionary patience to see unfold. Revolutionary patience is such a great phrase. Yeah. Can I just say, I would add 
to what Jason's saying, we move at the speed of trust. Mm. Yeah. And this is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Yeah. I talk to Barbara almost every other day. Tell her I said hello. (laughs) Gia, something that has always impressed me about you is the way in which you're able to move between the details and the big picture. And I can even think, um, see, behind you there, you have Mariam Kaba's book, uh, We Do This Till We Free Us, who I think of as a philosopher, activist, um, at least personally, that's how I I see um, her work. Could you tell us a little bit about how philosophy as a discipline or philosophers in particular influence the way that you see your organizing work? Yeah. So I would probably, you know, as you can tell, uh, I'm not a scholar as, you know, what I think of as a scholar, but, um, but I do see myself as really being driven by ideas um, that I've read, you know, all throughout the years that people introduced me to, and um, in particular, indigenous ideas, because, you know, you can name a lot of people who come from Europe and um, places who that I think are like, probably the birth of neoliberalism, right? So I look to what would have been like the opposite, right? Um, to help inspire in this idea of uh, the seventh generation. Um, <clears throat> the idea that we're, we're really driving against this very small group of I don't know, individuals who have, um, I would say, like traumatized by the neoliberalism, traumatized by eras of uh, you know, being driven into classism and that that creates like generational, it gets embedded in your DNA. We see people like Trump, you know, but more like the invisible um, leaders or the people who control systems in our country, these billionaires, these ultra billionaires and millionaires, often not the ones that we know of even like Elon Musk, there's something really wrong about their perspective of human and people and humanity, right? And that I'll give an analogy. A couple decades ago, I came across this, I came across this documentary about um, orangutans. There was this gentleman, (laughs) bear with me, who kind of like Jane Goodall went out after he graduated from college and followed a troop of baboons and orangutans. He in particular found uh, this one troop that where their alpha males, you know, kept the others from getting to sources of food. And, you know, they use physical, you know, strength and to overcome survival of the fittest type thing, but they controlled everybody and everyone feared them. Interestingly, about a decade in, he saw that this area in Africa uh, brought in like a, almost like a campground to invite tourism. And there were these large garbage bins. These garbage bins were coveted by these baboons and the, they wouldn't let anybody near it. Well, little do they know there was rat poison in there. The alpha males were killed off actually. And his, the, you know, the guy thought naturally predicted and hypothesized that, well, then the next 
you know, the, the lower males will rise up to become the alpha males, but that's not what happened. Instead, what happened is what he describes as almost utopian. These lower males and the females created what he called a, a place of um, egalitarianism. They took care of each other. There was sharing happening. Um, lone baboons would come, male baboons would come, and usually they're there to kind of fight for the domination of the of the troop. But often what would happen is they would get assimilated into the dominant culture of that space, which I found fascinating, right? I don't know how long he followed. It was a documentary created probably in the 70s or 80s. And I don't, it just stuck with me. Not that I say, I'm saying like, we have to find a way to kill off, you know, these alpha males. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we have to be able to harness our collective power to create a dominant culture. That's about, you know, treating each other in a, a humane way. And I believe in that power. So that's, you know, like what drives me and continues to motivate me to be like, we need to not buy into this idea of we're in competition with each other. We actually need each other. Our children need us to make this world sustainable, this earth sustainable. Can I chime in there around that question? Just because what, what Gia said made me, th- it, it kind of is a nice segue into what I wanted to say about like the role of philosophy, the role of the philosopher, et cetera. I mean, first off, I'm trained in philosophy. I think sometimes I consider myself a philosopher, probably people in philosophy would say I'm not a philosopher, but whatever. Um, but I do think there's like a role of philosophers and people doing philosophy of education that is related to what Gia just said. And in, in so far as I do think that we play like what Enrique Dussel calls rear guard philosophy roles, meaning like we're in the back, we're working with people to do the following things. And one of them is like, how do we collectively delegitimize dominant systems of thought and ethics? And so like part of the process, I think of organizing, but also building power is to actually delegitimize the dominant ethical and epistemological systems to say, actually there's other ways to do things that are more just, that are more collective-oriented, et cetera, right? So I think the process of delegitimization is really important. And I also think the process of, like, collective conceptualization, so, like, the collective process of building concepts together, I consider to be, like, a philosophical practice that's also can be rooted in activist spaces. And part of that process of building collective concepts is, like, problematizing collectively. This is, like, the big Paulo Freire thing, right? Like okay, this is how we're reading the world. How do we problematize the world in order to turn it into a question so that we can think collectively about it and then build some other notions of like the ways we think, you know, we should both represent and live reality. And so these are, that's more of like an abstract answer, but I think like if we're talking about like what, how do people who I think might be listening to this podcast, if I'm not mistaken in philosophy, like what's the role of philosophy in that in that way? I do think those are some of the ways that we can kind of rethink our role in in education spaces and activist spaces. Um, but definitely not to come in as Gia was mentioning. Like this is the history of philosophy, and these are the white male thinkers that we need to read and understand in order to better make you know schools or society. Thank you for that. <clears throat> 
These are these are phenomenal answers. Uh, I'm really struck by the fact that, or the the attention to the fact that history and the way things have been always has a kind of weight, but that weight is not deterministic of the future, that there's always room for openings, whether that comes through sort of like uh, deus ex machina, rat poison kind of thing, or via uh, more likely and humanely via rearguard philosophy, collective action at the speed of trust. Wonderful phrases. Uh, the next question that we tend to ask on this podcast doesn't necessarily fit as well as with this particular topic as it might, but I'm going to ask it anyway unless and uh, ask you to speak to this. The question is like, what are the implications for the system as a whole and how might this influence policy? It strikes me that like the the policy impetus for the last 20 to 40 years has been to sort of uh, minimize space and energy for the kinds of organizi- organizing that you're talking about to make uh, an alternative world maximally impossible. So let me ask, like, what ought, what ought well-intentioned policymakers think about with respect to the things that you are talking about? I ask that from a space. I'm teaching a course right now in which this is very much uh, on my mind about uh, how often I see nice people with good intentions doing and standing behind what I think of as really harmful policy solutions. So to the extent that people are sincere about their beliefs, uh, about their commitments to making things better, what ought those people to be aware of with respect to the kinds of work that you're doing? Jason, do you want to start this time? Yeah, this is such a big question. It's important. And I'm going to zero in more now on the question of financial debt just because it's something that I have more expertise in, I think, and I find to be really relevant in terms any conversation, neoliberalism, racial capitalism. And I actually want to start off with a question that I ask a lot of people in both education and organizing spaces, which is, to whom or what do schools and universities respond? And I think if we ask that question, that opens up space for a lot of different conversations about like, well, some people say it responds to the state or other people say it responds to business, et cetera. But one of the things that, you know, Barbara included that we're involved in this project that we're talking about is in the current state of neoliberal policy, it responds to creditors. In other words, universities and schools owe massive amounts of debts. That has an enormous influence over policy decisions. And a more real concrete way to think about this is when they closed 50 public schools in Chicago, part of the reasons they closed public schools in Chicago is because there was a budget deficit, meaning they owed some money to somebody. They owed that money to Wall Street. And in the districts, in that district's document, that year it says that the city has to pay creditors before it does anything else and that the money left over is the money that you can then use to do operations and capital, etc. The case of Puerto Rico right now where I do a lot of work is really important. They've closed over 600 public schools to pay creditors. They constantly are pushing austerity on the University of Puerto Rico to downsize, cut staff, hire adjuncts, more crowded classrooms. And so, again, this is all meant to make sure that the creditors get their pay. Always. Even more sinister is that when we do organize power and we organize strikes and organize, etc., that actually can drop your credit rating as a school district. 
or as a city or as a higher ed institution. So the case of Chicago, again, is illustrative because when Chicago teachers were on their last strike, there was some fear that Moody's was going to downgrade the credit rating of the city in the district, which would make it hard to get money. That's just another way of governing by debt. Same thing in higher ed. When Moody's rates higher education institutions, they say that if you have a docile workforce, basically, your credit rating could be higher. So this is something that gets really in the weeds. But I think like when we talk about policy in the United States and elsewhere today, we have to, you know, you see see this in Argentina, you see this in countries in Africa, etc. That they are governed by debt, to put it in short term. Um, and I think again, that we need to constantly be talking about the ways in which you can get rid of like that CEO president or that school board member, but they're still going to, whoever comes in there is still going to be answering to the fact that these budget shortfalls, these massive debts that have to be paid. And so they're just going to be the ones to implement austerity. And I think this gets really, really important around this policy and governance question around schools and higher ed. Let's stop there. That's fantastic, Gio. I was actually going to mention Puerto Rico. Um, I work a lot with FMPR, the Federation of the, you know, Maestros de Puerto Rico, and uh, their president does an incredible amount of political education across the island. She and her team, they just, you know, it's a, almost as a state of uh, being a right to work because they have to try to get members to join their unions. Uh, the main union was decertified. And um, in New York City, I'll parallel this, we are under mayoral control. And under mayoral control during Bloom, the Bloomberg years, uh, he was able to bring in business people, right, into, it's almost like the Trojan horse, coming into the Department of Education. Joel Klein implemented uh, fair student funding formulas, right? And he, just think about how that sounds, fair student funding, which took uh, budgeting and allocation of funds to schools that were based on average teacher salary. We have a contract, right? So the high, it, it was... Schools would be rewarded for having, you know, teachers with years of experience who are higher up on the salary scale, right? Those things were valued, actually. But as soon as fair student funding came in, it was the funding format somebody mentioned early, uh, earlier. I think it was you, Derek, who mentioned like the per pupil spending, right? So now we have uh, money following the student, which creates competition between schools. You want to compete for more students to get more money. But it doesn't negate the fact that you still have students with special needs. So you need to hire those extra related service providers. You need those extra folks. Um, So then schools individually would go into debt in New York City. I remember the Earth School being told they owe money from last year, the, the previous year. I'm like, how does a school like we're not a business? We don't make money, you know, and uh What's happening with charter schools? It boils down the bottom line are dollars. So I don't know if people know this, if listeners know this, if you're in New York City, um, by the end of October, the money that followed a student, it stays at the school. So if the student were to leave like in November or whatnot, like that money does not follow the student everywhere they go throughout the year. So what charter schools very cleverly do, they 
assess the students on how they would do on standardized testing very early on. Then by October, they, you know, they start sending notices to the parent, like, you know, let's have a meeting about your child's, you know, they make it seem like they're so on top of it, but it's really because they're trying to prepare the parents of particular students with special needs. Like um, you might need to find another school. This may not be the right school. And they can do that. They have zero oversight. Public schools don't do this. So no matter how many times they call themselves public schools, they're not. They're not under the same kind of rules and, you know, expectations. So they keep the money and they've kicked this, the student out. And the Earth School has taken many of these charter school students in your Success Academy, um, KIPP, you name it. So policy-wise, you know, we go to city council hearings, we talk about these things, and then we have meetings with them individually. Often what they tell us, if teachers and parents who work all day and they have a hard time setting up these appointments to begin with, what they've said to us, and I've had to throw back at them is, well, you know, the charter school people, they have people coming to us all the time. Actually, there are 10 times as many people who come, you know, and they offer campaign contributions and things like that. So these are very wealthy charter, you know, groups who can afford lobbyists, who can afford to pay parents to go to lobby day and busloads actually shut down school and even bring the kids and busloads. So then it appears as if the public school parents don't give a shit. Excuse my French. They, they've told us that like, well, you know, they seem to care more. These parents, like, I'm like, are you kidding me? You have like, it's like, okay, let's do some real education here. Public school system does not have a separate funding to pay parents, shut down school to lobby on lobby day. Did you think about that? And the fact that uh, these charter industry people are very, very intricately t- tied to the Adams administration. They were like the number one funders. Um, also, Dan Weisberg, our deputy chancellor, who's from the Bloomberg years, who um, is inextric- inextricably tied to the system. He's not an educator, right? He is someone who is tied when, with the new teacher project, all the Michelle Re entities that were created um, have all their friends from the public, the charter school industry uh, competing for these things. But the public school system doesn't have a separate budget for media to create pamphlets and flyers. So essentially policymakers only know what they know. And here we are scrambling on our day-to-day trying to just, you know, survive almost. And we're expected to be able to get together and have the funds and resources to do the same kind of lobbying work. It's just, you know, there's a big uh, education gap in there. Thank you guys both. So you have raised so many really important um, points this whole time, and I've been nodding as you've both been talking. And I really appreciate the way that you articulated the issues and also surfaced a lot of things that I think are generally hidden. We're going to close by asking you, both to think for a moment about, we've talked about policy and big picture, and zooming in now on the individual stakeholders in these institutions, either parents or students um, or teachers, what is something that they might do tomorrow even (laughs) to disrupt the machine? Um, How might they get involved? And just really something, you know, this is where we're sort of at more soundbite, something really 
one or two specific things that somebody might take from this conversation, feeling inspired, and go and try out in their world tomorrow? Do you want to start us, Gia? Yeah, I can really... um a base level thing that you can do is go to the website of the Alliance for Quality Education. They're currently fighting um, to, the, our governor of New York is trying to raise the charter cap. So if you're a New Yorker, please go there. But AQE exists in other places as well, and they're connected. So that's a really good place also to fight um, the continuation of mayoral control. And if you're in another state, another, you know, district outside, uh, get involved in any community-based, parent-based group, grassroots ideally, that is fighting a top-down control of your public school system. It's a lot of mayoral control going on. And um, if you're an educator, get involved also with your parents. And if you're not part of a caucus or some kind of group within your union um, to fight austerity and privatization, you know, you can start one. So. Thanks, Gia. Jason? Yeah, I, I just everything Gia said. Um, I guess I'll plug Debt Collective because Debt Collective does have branches across the country. We obviously are a national organization and we are at interested in you know the ways in which financial capitalism debt and racial capitalism and intertwine and we want to bring those systems down to in order to do something better so we'd love to have listeners join that um but i guess you know one really thing i'm going to borrow from robin kelly you know love study struggle um build those relationships study together you know like small book clubs uh Take the time to read folks that are talking about some of this stuff. And, um, you know, after you study and you sharpen analysis, as you're sharpening analysis, you're struggling as well. And, and that struggle should be sharpening analysis and building new strategies. So I think there's like a nice connection between study and struggle. And there's also um, the necessity to do so with, with love rather than as we were talking about competition and, uh, you know, alpha male this alpha male that uh so hopefully uh yeah that's what i would say thank you both really appreciate it and i really appreciate how you've both given us um organizations to tap into but also a way of being in our daily communities that could also lead to change so thank you very much both of you for being on the show yes thanks and that is our show many thanks to gia and jason for taking the time to talk to us As always, do subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and a review to help others discover us as well. The email address at which you can reach Kara and I together is thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. We also have a form linked in the episode description if you'd like to suggest future topics and or guests, including yourself. So for Kara Furman, and until next week when we put up the next episode, I'm Derek Gottlieb. We will see you next time.